do you think of when I say the word chaos? What comes to mind? It, it may be a picture of your teenager's bedroom, perhaps. That would qualify as a, as a definition, illustration of chaos. For, for me, it's our morning process in the morning trying to get out the door and the alarm goes off and we jump out of bed and everybody's going different directions and Marlene runs downstairs and gets some breakfast going and we shave and shower and run down. Then I run downstairs and uh, have you let the dogs out? No. Have you let the dogs in? Is the bird let out? Do you have your lanyard? Do you have your lunch? Do you have your keys? And then we all five run out to four different cars and peel out going different directions. It's not quite like that, but it's close and it can be chaotic. I was asking some of the staff guys this week what they thought of when they heard the word chaos, and my dad said he thought of the show Get Smart. Do you, do you remember the show? When I was a kid, this was played over and over again, uh, and there was these uh, agents of control, Agent 99, uh, Agent Maxwell Smart, and, they were, and it was like supposed to be high tech, and they had phones in their shoes. Do you remember this? I don't, I don't know who thought it would be a good idea to put a phone in the, what idiot, thought that would be a good idea to put a shoe in your face to talk about. Anyway, uh, it was a big deal, and they were fighting agents, remember this, of chaos. And the agents of chaos would try to, you know, create chaos, and they would fight them. And then there was a movie made recently, or a few years back, uh, with Steve Carell in it, and they kind of redid it. And then recently, Home Depot, I was watching a football game the other day, Home Depot has a commercial where a little pig comes out and knocks over some Gatorade or something like that, and they call him the agent of chaos. Maybe you thought of that. Or maybe you're more scientifically minded and you thought of chaos theory when you heard chaos. Uh, chaos theory is a mathematical theory that even in apparently chaotic, nonlinear systems, there's an underlying pattern that affects everything else. So here's how Edward Lawrence, who was like one of the earlier proponents of it, said it. He said, and I quote, chaos is when the present determines the future, but the approximate present does not approximately determine the future. It's where we get the butterfly effect. You ever heard of the butterfly effect where the whole idea that a butterfly in New Mexico could be flapping its wing and it displaces molecules and it has a chain reaction which causes a hurricane in China? That's chaos theory. Seems kind of chaotic to me. Maybe that's what you thought of. But maybe you didn't think of all those things because all those definitions of chaos are, are kind of benign. Maybe what popped into your head struck a deeper, more personal, and a darker Maybe, maybe you thought of your work situation. Or, or maybe you're experiencing some chaos in your family right now. Maybe it's our culture, which seems again this week to be in chaos. Broke my heart on Wednesday to hear of what happened at Kroger and the shooting there. I was talking to a pastor friend on Thursday, right after the shooting on Wednesday, and he said his son-in-law was in Kroger when it happened. And he was able to get about 30 people out a back door uh, through like the meat section. He gathered them together and got them out when the shots were going off. And he said that he heard way more shots than the news reported. And then I was with some of my pastor friends from the West End right after that. And we were talking about it. And, and they were saying to me, Tim, we're, we're dealing with a lot of people with a lot of fear. Because these people in Kroger were shot for no other reason but being black. They were minding their own business, getting a poster board for a kid's project or going to get groceries and chaos. 
It occurs to me our unity service is happening providentially at a perfect time. That we're going to come together and break down this Ninth Street divide. And we're going to do the opposite of what's going on in the world. While everybody else is dividing, we're going to come together and declare what God says over Louisville. And then was it yesterday, the shooting at the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh? Shot for being Jewish? Chaos. Maybe you thought of your personal life when I said chaos. Maybe you thought there's some things going on in your life right now, and your life feels very chaotic. I've talked to several people lately who, like, I'm on the edge of depression or I'm on the edge of just, it's just chaos in my brain right now. If you were to look up the word chaos and what it means in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the definitive dictionary of the English language, you would read the first definition is a void, a gulf, an abyss, the ultimate abyss, infinite darkness. And then right after that it says obsolete, meaning nobody uses that definition anymore. But here's the definition they do use. A state resembling that of primordial chaos, utter confusion or disorder. Utter That's chaos, utter confusion or disorder. See, when things are chaotic, uh, there's no order. There's no structure. There's nothing to rest on. You can't breathe easy. Peace is replaced by anxiety. Trust is replaced by fear. Chaos brings with it this unsettled feeling, which causes you to make really bad decisions. See, if if you find yourself this morning in a chaotic situation, that is not the frame of mind to make life decisions. And yet some of you here today, if you were honest, you would say, you find yourself in a chaotic situation. Well, I believe God has something to say to us today, especially those of us who feel the impact of the chaos around us. And it comes from the very first page of the Bible. So if you haven't already done it, when Kim was reading it, turn to the very first page. I don't mean the table of contents. I don't mean the publication data. I mean the first actual page of text. Genesis chapter 1. That Kim so beautifully Read, and I want you to, if you are in a chaotic situation, or you know someone that is, I want you to listen closely again to these words. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created. The Hebrew is, Bereshit bara Elohim. It's a beautiful phrase. I once heard Ravi Zacharias preach Bereshit bara Elohim, and he said it over and over again because it's so beautiful in the Hebrew, and it makes possible everything that comes after it. Bereshit bara Elohim. It makes possible the, the material world. It makes possible your existence, my existence. It makes possible consciousness, rationality. All come from Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And look at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now you might ask, okay, all right, Tim, where is chaos in that verse? Well, uh, the phrase formless and empty, I'm told by Hebrew scholars, can be translated total chaos. So read it like that. Now the earth was total chaos. It sounds similar to today sometimes. In fact, there's five words in verse 2 that that are used either individually or together in combination to denote chaos throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Formless, empty, darkness, the deep, 
the waters, if you go on and read the rest of Genesis 1 like Kim did earlier, you will see that in verse 10 it talks, talks about the seas. In verse 21 it talks about the sea monsters. Now the NIV translates it, uh, verse 21, God created the great creatures of the sea. That's rather benign translation. The Hebrew word there was used in Canaanite mythology to name uh, an actually dreaded sea monster. Now, some, that bothers some people to think Moses threw in a mythical creature into his explanation of creation. But here's his point. God created everything, and he's over everything, even your goofy little sea monster that you're so scared of. God is greater than sea monsters. When, when my kids were younger, we used to watch VeggieTales. Anybody ever watch VeggieTales? You know what I'm talking about? VeggieTales. And there was this one song, I'll never forget it. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, 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 God is bigger than the boogeyman. And he's watching out for you and me. So are you frightened? You know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know that song. Tell the truth if you know that song. Okay, raise your hand if you just want me to stop singing. That's okay. That's fine. Okay, a, a number. Okay, all of the youth. Okay, that's fair. But that song isn't saying there's such a thing as a boogeyman. That song isn't saying Godzilla is real. It's saying God is greater than anything you're scared of. And that's what Moses is saying in Genesis 1. It would be like, you know, we had this holiday coming up this week called Halloween. Now, I don't like Halloween. I don't get Halloween. It irritates me. I get in a bad mood around it, okay? And, and I just, I, I don't understand why we would want to honor that kind of stuff. But anyway, it would be like me coming up to preach this morning and saying, you guys are scared of ghosts and goblins and demons and spiders and skeletons and clowns and, and pumpkins. And God is greater than clowns, <laughs> God is greater than all that stuff and any of that foolishness. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is above everything. And everything you fear is less than God. God is greater. He's not saying he believes in sea monsters. He's saying God is greater than sea monsters and everything else because he created everything that is. If it exists, if it is, then he made it. Just think about that. that. That is the biblical statement. If it exists, God made that, That's just one of the implications of Genesis 1. There is nothing in the world greater than the creator of all that is. In fact, it's even more in your face than that. We miss this because we read it as 21st century readers. But if we read it back then, 3,400 years ago, well, you would know that, that Moses is deliberately taking on pagan creation myths and calling them out by name. Is it really? How's he doing that? Well, there were a number of creation myths in the ancient Near East, okay? And they all included a battle between the gods, that the creation was these gods that were duking it out. It was like the battle of the alpha dogs. And, and, and whoever won was the one who get to be lord over creation, right? And so, for example, in the Babylonian myth, well, which is called the Enuma Elish, if you've ever read that, the Babylonian myth says that the head god, whose name was Marduk, not to be confused with Marmaduke, <laughs> that could be confusing, Marmaduke is just... A big dog, okay? This was Marduk. Marduk gets in a fight, are you ready for this? With the deep. Her name was Tiamat. 
She was the goddess of the ocean, the goddess of the deep, just like in Genesis 1, the, the, the deep. And so they get into a fight, and then Marduk opens up Tiamat's mouth, the deep. He opens her mouth, and then because he was the god of the wind, he sent the wind in there, and the wind kind of blew up her belly, and he took an arrow, and he poked her in the belly, and she split in half, and half her body became the earth, and the other half became the sky, and so there you go. Listen, nothing like the Genesis 1 story, except that there is a deep. Do you see what Moses is doing? He said, hey, you know that deep that you think was in battle with the God who created? No, 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 God made the deep. Or take the Canaanite myth, where the storm god, whose name was Baal, or Baal, depending on where you're from. You know, if you're from Kentucky, it's Baal. Uh, And so... um, uh, Baal, who was the god of lightning and rain and fertility, uh, he fought, are you ready for this? The sea god, which was called the god of chaos, whose name was Yam. And so Yam, not a yam you eat, but Yam like chaos, okay? So chaos was fighting Baal, and Baal barely beats him, and he becomes lord of all. It's nothing like Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the, the ocean obeys God. There's no battle. Or take the Egyptian myth, for example, where in the Egyptian myth, uh, the earth was, was, wasn't even really created. It just kind of developed through successive births of various gods. And then the god Amun, who was the wind. Get this now. This is the Egyptian myth. The wind, the god Amun, brooded over the face of the primal waters. Hmm, that, that, that sounds similar, actually, to Genesis 1. And then there was this god named Geb, who was the lord of the abyss, the, the deep. Okay, so again, Moses is calling these guys out. And so what happened was Gib, he, 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 brought, he was the god of the abyss, right? This, this watery abyss. He brought up this primal hill, and the hill comes out of the ocean, and there's an egg on top of the hill, and the egg splits open, and it's the god Amun-Ra, and he emerges from the egg in the form of a goose, and he begins to fly, and his honking was the first sound ever heard. If I'm going to make a story up, it's not going to be about a goose. I, I, honk, I just, <laughs> nothing like Genesis 1. Although the characters are the same. Or take even the Greek mythology, which was much later. Do you remember, if you know your, those of you who know your Greek mythology, who the oldest being or the oldest god was? Chaos. Do you see what's happening in Genesis 1? Moses is relating to his context. Genesis is a missional book. Moses is taking pieces of what they believed and he's showing them how the one true living God is greater. Just like I used earlier, you know, I referenced Get Smart. None of you thought that I was saying that Agent 99 and and Agent Maxwell Smart really existed. And there's an agency called Control. And there's an evil crime syndicate named Chaos. and, And no one thought that. No one, everyone here knew I was referencing a fiction to make a nonfiction point. And just as I contextualized the message to 21st century Americans, so Moses was writing to the ancient Near East approximately 3,400 years ago. They didn't have veggie tales or movies for him to relate to. But they did have creation myths that were wrong. And so Moses said, let me tell you how it really works. It's similar to what Paul did in Athens in Acts chapter 17 when he went up to the Areopagus, you know, he's going to speak there. And when he got there to all these pagan philosophers and who were, who were steeped in Greek philosophy, he didn't say, open your Bible to... He didn't do that. They didn't, 
Bible. They didn't know the Old Testament. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter could get up and say, this is to fulfill what the prophet Joel said, because they, they were Jews. They knew the Old Testament. When, when Paul went to the Areopagus, he didn't start with that. He started where they were. So he said, hey, I was walking around today. I found an altar to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about this God about which you know nothing. And then he quoted their own poets. In him we live and move and have our being. That was a Cretan poet named Epimenides who said that. Or we are his offspring. That was a Greek poet named Eratus. So Paul started where they were and what they had, and he explained the gospel from there. Just as a side note here, this should be our manner of reaching people. A few years ago when we had the Alpha program, uh, in some of the training of the Alpha program, it said people can only be where they are which doesn't sound very profound, but is terribly profound if you think about it. People can only be where they are. So you got to start where people are, use what they have, and then point them to Jesus. That's what Moses was doing in Genesis 1. He started where they were, and he showed them that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true living God, is over all. So Moses is starting where they were, and where they were was believing that chaos was a God that ruled their lives. And the truth is, some of you here today find yourself in a similar place where chaos is trying to control your life. So hear the word of the Lord. God is greater than the chaos in your life. Christ is greater than chaos. Christ is greater than chaos. He didn't have to do battle with other gods. There are no other gods. He alone is God. He didn't have to fight chaos. He didn't have to fight the deep. He didn't have to create the mo- or fight the monsters of the waters. He created all that stuff. He didn't have to toil and sweat and barely eke out, you know, the, accidentally the creation of the world. No. Moses says the material world is no accident. Human life is no accident. Your life is no accident. There is purpose. There is meaning. We have a destiny. We're going somewhere. I have to be careful, or I might start preaching. So let me just very briefly, with the remaining time that I have, very briefly, very quickly, make three statements that come right out of Genesis 1 with corresponding applications. Um, um, You may have read Genesis 1, or you may have heard it being read this morning, and you were going, okay, so how does that apply to me? What difference does it make? I'm going to give you the difference that Genesis 1 makes. This is going to be intensely and thoroughly practical and applicable to you today. Number one, God brings order out of chaos. God brings order out of chaos. If you are feeling overwhelmed by the chaos in your world, know this, God, in Genesis 1, turns chaos into cosmos. That's a theme that goes right through Scripture, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, over and over again in Scripture. God takes the chaos of this world, and he forms something beautiful and something new until you get to the end of the book where it says, Revelation 21, 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. So follow the story. In the beginning, God takes chaos And he turns it into beautifully ordered cosmos. Sin comes into the world, which is rebellion against God. And as a result, chaos reemerges. And now we live in a fallen world, but Jesus came to redeem us from sin and its results, namely, chaos. I read a book this week by Sidney Gradenus. Gradenus? Gradenus? I don't know. I apologize for anybody related to him. If I butchered his name there. 
The book is called From Chaos to Cosmos, Creation and New Creation. Here's what he writes. The implication is that the scripture views our struggles with pain, disease, disaster, and death in this fallen world as a form of chaos that will one day be replaced by a well-ordered cosmos. So what does that mean to us? Here's what it means. God brings order out of chaos. Therefore, never lose hope. Never lose hope. I know some of you are in seriously chaotic stories right now, and there's crazy things in your life, and you're too busy, and you're too overwhelmed, and you're trying to do too much and carry too much. I get it. I do. I feel it myself sometimes. But however chaotic your life is right now, it's nothing compared to the chaos of Genesis 1-2. Everything was darkness and void and empty. Chaos. So don't lose hope. Never lose hope. See, most of the time we're in a chaotic situation, we think, hey, this is the end of something. When chaos is going around, this is the end of something. And sometimes it is. But with God, it can be the beginning of something new. New creation. It wasn't Genesis 1. There was chaos. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point in verse 2, you think, well, this is going to be a short book. <laughs> we just got, he created everything, and now it's chaos, right? Where are we going from here? And God takes the chaos, and he turns it into creation. God can bring new creation out of your chaos. I mean, let me just illustrate that. I was talking to a pastor a friend this week, actually, um, and he'd been doing some ministry with some guys in Nigeria. Now, Nigeria is a country uh, that's a wonderful country, but it's in a lot of chaos right now. The country of, of Nigeria is the home base for Boko Haram, whose name means against progress or against Western education, depending on how you try it. Either way. And you've, you've read about Boko Haram. The, the way they do this is they kidnap people. It's a violent group. They, wanna, they want to violently establish Sharia law. I mean, they, and they're upfront about this. They're not trying to hide it. And so their, their attempt to do this has created chaos in the country of Nigeria. But do you know what's happening? Right in the middle of the chaos of Boko Haram, God has released a healing revival in Lagos, Nigeria. And I was just talking to the guy that was this week. Now, I know this is what I'm giving, what I'm about to tell you is secondhand information because he's not here, okay? But maybe he will, we will get him here one time. He's over in Africa. And God is, people are getting saved. And he, it takes them the whole week to count the offering. I said, What? So many people are getting healed. They have, a, they have one hour. They have a healing hour from 11 p.m. to midnight. Okay? Now, I don't know why they ain't got Netflix, I guess, to be at work early in the morning. But from 11 to midnight, they have a healing line, and they pray for healing. And so many people are getting healed in the midst of the chaos of, of Boko Haram. So many people are getting healed that ambulances in the city don't take people to the hospital. They bring them to church. I couldn't believe that. I'm like, what? He said, they line up outside church. Can you imagine? <laughs> Ambulances. And they're, bringing, and they're getting healed. And he told a story. Um, he's praying for something. He's at the end of one line, right? He's down here at the end, right? And he's praying for this lady. And down on the other end, this lady starts screaming. I mean, screaming. And he tells his assistant, go, go tell her to be quiet. I'm trying to pray for people. 
He goes down there, and he's praying. She's still screaming. He comes back and says, uh, you probably ought to come down here. And, and he says, tell her to be quiet. Uh, sir, you need to come down here. He's, first thing he's praying for, hold on. He goes down here, and this lady had brought her little boy, I think it was, uh, who was like five years old or whatever, and did not have an eye in his eye socket. No eyeball in his eye socket. And they sat there and watched an eyeball grow into that eye socket. And I'm saying to the dude, did you tape it or did you record it on your phone? And he says to me, you know, you know he, said, he said, listen, everybody was around. It was, I was actually talking through this other guy. He, he said, everybody was so shocked, nobody can move. And before you judge them, you might do the same thing. You might be like, what? They, he told another story because the atheists are always saying, how come you, you, you claim there's miracles? How come you don't have limbs grow out? Well, they had a lady who was there who, who had, was, had been born with a, a, a birth defect. And so her leg went to her knee and right below her knee was her foot. She, and it was right there. So she had one regular leg and foot and she had the other one. They just went below the knee and there was a foot there. And they prayed for her and it grew out in front of them. I ain't talking about, hey, sit on the front row. Oh, you're half an inch off, you know. I'm a, I'm a talk. We're talking. What is my point? Here's my point. In the middle of chaos, God brings new creation. And so you might have chaos in your life this morning. And I'm telling you, the God that we serve, that created all that is, he can bring new creation out of chaos. Number two, God's spirit hovers over the waters. Now remember, remember, the waters in the ancient Near East is a direct reference to the idea of chaos. And so even there, God's spirit is hovering. He's hovering. See, I, I think that one of the worst things about chaos, when you're going, if you're here today and you're in a chaos, chaotic situation, I think one of the worst things is the seeming absence of God. Now, he's not absent. God is never absent. But sometimes when you're in a chaotic situation, it feels like he's absent. So... Therefore, recognize the Spirit's presence even in chaos. If you find yourself this morning in a chaotic storm or a season of life, remember Genesis 1 and stop. Just stop. Sometimes just the chaos, we get going and we don't even know where we're going or when or why. We don't know anything. Do I even love Jesus? What's my name? I don't know. It just Because things get chaotic. Just stop. Just stop and recognize the Spirit's presence even there. You are not alone. You are never alone. So wherever you are right now, and some of you are like, we mean wherever we are. We're in the room. You know, your body can be in the room, but your mind can be somewhere else. So I don't know where your mind is right now. If it's on vacation to Hawaii, come back. If it's in the chaos of your world right now, come back. Wherever your heart and your mind is right now, whatever you're going through, the Spirit of God is there to bring new creation. He's hovering, hovering, waiting to speak, to activate God's words. Which leads me to the third point and the final one this morning. I'm sorry, it's not bonus point Sunday, okay? Only three points this week. Point number three. God's word is creative. God's word is creative. 
10 times. The reason we read the whole chapter of Genesis 1 is so you could hear 10 times in Genesis, it says in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, and God said, and when God says something, stuff happens. His word takes chaos and turns it into cosmos. He says, let there be light. And there was light. And he created water and land and earth and, and, and life and plants and animals and humans made in the image of God. How? By speaking. And God said. You know what it reminds me of? The Chronicles of Narnia. Remember the story, Chronicles of Narnia, these children going through a wardrobe. They're in this magical land called Narnia, but it's under a curse because Jadis who's this wicked person, has put, she's not the real, uh, she's not the legitimate heir to the throne. She's a usurper to the throne. And she's made Narnia be under a curse where it's always winter and never Christmas. That would stink. If you've got to go through winter, at least have Christmas. Goodness. Goodness. But Aslan comes. And Aslan is the great lion who represents Jesus Christ. And wherever Aslan goes, the curse is reversed. And the snow begins to melt. And grass pushes up through the ice. Well, earlier in the story, later in terms of the books, there's a book called The Magician's Nephew. And in that, it's the story of the creation of Narnia. And so some other kids, I think it was Diggory and Polly and maybe Uncle Andrew, I think if that's right, they show up as Narnia is being created. And do you remember how Narnia is created? Aslan begins to sing, and his song comes out of his chest. And when the music leaves the beast, this great lion, which represents Jesus Christ, creation comes. Wherever the song of Aslan goes, creation occurs. Listen, you guys, we think and speak and sing because we're made in the image of a thinking, speaking, singing God. Now, here's what's fascinating. We're told by astrophysicists that the universe is still expanding. Meaning, the song of Aslan. God's word, which was spoken however long ago this was, is still creating. And here's what's fascinating to me. This blows my mind. Contrary to all expectations, the expansion of the universe appears to be speeding up. You know, if you have an explosion, something goes... It begins to slow down the further away it gets from the center. But apparently, for whatever reason, God spoke, and it keeps on going, and it picks up steam. The point is this. When God, when, when, when God speaks, things happen. When we say God's word is creative, we mean it creates new stuff, and it keeps on creating new stuff. Now, to kind of explain, let me unpack this very quickly, very briefly, because this can be confusing. Because in the Bible... The word, word, gets used in different ways. So when I say God's word is creative, you could be confused. Because uh, one way, the first way that word is used in the Bible means the living word, which is Jesus. So in John 1, 1, remember this, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word there is logos in Greek. Uh, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, if it's made, he made it. He is, Jesus is the Logos, the eternal word of God. He is the living word, okay? And so this is a reference from John 1 to Genesis 1. When God speaks, that is Jesus creating things. Now, 
That's one way. But the word word is also used as the written word, which means the scriptures. Right? So 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. See what's happening there? He, he doesn't, when he's not talking about Jesus when he says the word of God, he's talking about the message or the scripture that they brought. So there's the living word, which is Jesus. There's the written word, which is the scriptures, the Bible. And know this, the written word will always point you to the living word. Oh, if you're reading the Bible and it doesn't point you to the living word, one of two things has happened. Either one, you accidentally picked up good housekeeping, or number two, you're interpreting it wrong. Because the written word will always lead you to the living word. There's a third way it can be used, especially in a charismatic church, and it's what we call a prophetic word or a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. That too is biblical. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now hear me. This is important, especially to a church that wants to be alive to the gifts of the Spirit and prophetic influence. A prophetic word or a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom must always be in line with the written word, which will always lead you to the living word. If it does not do that, it ain't a word. Okay, so somebody comes up to you after church and says, I believe I have a word for you. You know how people get, they get like the religious language when they got a word. They like break into, they don't talk normal. Brother. I believe I have a word for you. It's a bit of a corrective word, but I hope you're mature enough to handle it. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about? Here's the deal. Anybody comes to you with a so-called word, make sure it lines up with the written word and then testifies to the living word. And if it doesn't, say, see ya. That's important. So when I come and say that God's word is creative, what I'm referring to is the living word, which is testified to by the written word. God's word is creative. Therefore, what? Therefore, know the word. Know the word. When I say that, I mean the written word, which points to the living word. Practically, I mean that when you're in a chaotic situation, see, I said all of that for a reason. When you're in a chaotic situation, you need to read the word. You need to do more. You need to study the word. You need to meditate on the word. You need to think about the word. You need to memorize the word and then say the word. See, in Genesis 1, when God's word was spoken, it changed things. It created things. Now, let me just explain how this works in my life, okay? Let me just give you an example from my own life. When I'm tempted to, to deal with fear and worry, which these days is almost exclusively related to my sons, okay? Not, not 100%, because I do have this, this dissertation I'm working on, and it causes me to worry too. So, okay, my, which is, it's actually like my fifth son right now, so... It's, and it's even more expensive than the other one. So, uh, so when I'm tempted to worry, and when I'm tempted to fear, you know, it's in the middle of the night usually because it's the dark when the demons come out. And, 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 you, and I'm get, it's two in the morning, and I'm tempted to fear, and I'm tempted to worry about my children and about my dissertation. You know what's best? I mean, I can say what I think, and I can say what I say, but it don't really change anything. 
But if I would just start saying what God says, what his word, if I just say, wait a second, God has not given up, because it's better, I walk when I do this. I go down, not, not in the bed, because that would wake up Marlene. I go downstairs and say, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That means if I have a spirit of fear, God didn't give it to me. Somebody else gave it to me, and he's not welcome here. So I do have, what do I have? I have a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. God's not giving me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Then I say something like this. uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. Then I say, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast on you because he trusts you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You are more than a conqueror. And about that time, I'm starting to feel good. I'm about to punch fear in the mouth. It don't take long. And then I start saying what the Bible says over my sons. You know, Isaiah says, your sons will be taught of the Lord and great will be your children's peace. I say, Nathaniel, Graham, Elijah, and Aiden will be taught of the Lord. And gra- not, these ain't my words. These are God's words that I'm saying about my kids. They're going to be like, they're gonna be like uh, Joseph who had favor in Egypt when they go to public school. They're going like, to be like Daniel who was seen as ten times better than the competition. Like, they're going to be like Jesus who grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. And I speak that over them. And things change. Listen. Sometimes God's word creates a new situation, and sometimes it creates a new you. Something's going to be made new, though. If it's God's word, something, God's word is created, so something's going to be made new. It's either going to be your situation that's made new, or you're going to be made new. Sometimes the situation stays the same, but you're not the same. Now, listen, I know, okay, that somebody may misunderstand what I'm saying here. If you think I'm referring to the so-called name it and claim it idea, I'm not. I know there's a lot of goofiness out there and there's a lot of abuse of what I'm teaching right now. That's not what I'm saying. I think you know that's not what I'm saying. I am suggesting, however, that we lay hold of the promises of God and say what God says. Goodness, sometimes we just always say what we say. Goodness. I already know what I say. And it don't change anything. <laughs> Listen, when you come to God, be real. Okay, I'm not saying be fake, all right? Because God doesn't heal fake people. He only heals real people. So when you come to God, say, all right, here's what's going on. Here's what I feel. And that's enough. You don't have to keep saying what you say. Say what God says. And lay hold of the promises. Charles Spurgeon. I'll just close with this. Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. And in what was Civil War era in our time in England, 1862, on a February Sunday morning, he got up and he preached a sermon on uh, Hebrews 11.33, which says, who through faith obtained the promises. And here's his introduction. The promises of God are to the believer an inexhaustible mine of wealth. Happy is it. For him, if he knows how to search out their secret veins and enrich himself with their hidden treasures. They are to him an armory containing all manner of offensive and defensive weapons. Blessed is he who has learned to enter into the sacred arsenal. To put on the breastplate and the helmet. To lay his hand upon the spear and the sword. 
They are to the believer a surgery in which he will find all manner of restoratives and blessed elixirs. He shall find in them an ointment for every wound, a cordial for every faintness, a remedy for every disease. Blessed is he who is well skilled in heavenly pharmacy and knows how to lay hold of the healing virtues of the promises of God. The promises are to the Christian a storehouse of food. They are as the granaries which Joseph built in Egypt or as the golden pot wherein the fresh manna was preserved. Blessed is he who can take the five barley loaves of fishes of promise and break them until his 5,000 necessities shall all be supplied and he is able to gather up baskets full of fragments. The promises are the Christian's Magna Carta of liberty. They are the title deeds of his heavenly estate. Happy is he who knows how to read them well and call them his own. Yes, they are the jewel room in which the Christian's crown treasures are preserved, the regalia secretly his today, but which he shall openly wear in paradise. He is already a king who has the silver key with which to unlock the strong room. He may now, even now, grasp the scepter, wear the crown, and put upon his shoulders the imperial mantle. Oh, how unutterably rich are the promises of our faithful covenant-keeping God. If we had here the tongue of the mightiest of human orators, and if that tongue could be touched with a live coal off the altar, yet still it could not utter a tenth of the praises of the exceedingly great and precious promises of God. That was his introduction. What am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. Friends, lay hold of the great promises. Lay hold of the precious promises of God's word and say what he says. If you're in a chaotic situation today, or you're moved by the chaos in our world, remember these things. God brings order out of chaos, therefore never lose hope. Never lose hope. Number two, God's spirit hovers over the waters, therefore recognize the spirit's presence even in chaos. And number three, God's word is creative. Therefore, know the word. Say the word. Say what God says. And he brings order out of chaos.